This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello, and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio, on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio, and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Rose Fox. I'm a Senior Reviews Editor at Publishers Weekly, and we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, author David Handler discusses his new novel, The Girl with the Kaleidoscope Eyes. Then, PW contributing editor Judith Rosen highlights some upcoming books from small presses. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by NPD BookScan. There's lots happening on the hardcover fiction list, including a new number one. Uh, this is The Store by James Patterson, uh, writing with Richard DeLallo. Uh, this is, uh, I love this. Patterson basically looked at Amazon and said, you know, this, this sounds like the setup for uh, a horror thriller and uh and so we get the store a powerful retailer that can deliver anything to your door via drone and it even anticipates needs and desires you didn't know you had wow. um, and so he thinks that this is pretty creepy and invasive and he structured an entire thriller around someone who finds the truth about the store <laughs> and has to write his expose before they stop him i love this wow i love this, this. i love that that yeah that he did this i mean it 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 doesn't get much bigger in the thriller field than james patterson and so he can basically get away with this because you know amazon's not gonna stop carrying his books right exactly exactly <laughs> he's one of the few maybe only who can get away with this uh so uh so this is um uh, this is a great sort of near future thriller about uh invasion of privacy and uh, the commercialization of everything and kudos to james patterson and for <laughs> for deciding that was a great topic for and book. when you say the near future it is near the we think. It's it's pretty near. <laughs> so uh, so that's at number one, right. the store, and uh, just below it, number two, Seeing Red by Sandra Brown. Uh, we say in our review that combustible relations between a strong man with serious flaws and a beautiful smart woman with unexpected strengths elevate this novel of romantic suspense, uh, which is uh, the, the protagonists are a TV journalist and uh, former. ATF agent, and uh, there's a pretty straightforward thriller plot. Um, she's trying to interview someone, and uh, he's trying to help someone, and the two of them come mm. together as their missions intersect. Our review says that competent plotting, sizzling romance, and some nifty surprises should satisfy Brown's eager fans. Um, she's a very big name in romantic suspense, and uh, sold 22,000 copies right out of the gate, right. which is really just below Patterson's numbers there, right. uh, which uh, the store sold 23,000. So doing doing very well, one right. and two, neck and neck. And number seven, we have Exposed by Lisa Scottolini. She's uh, an Edgar winner and highlights the perils of our healthcare system in her fast-paced, heart-tugging fifth Rosado and Denunzio novel, according to our review. And uh, this uh, it, Denunzio is uh, Mary Denunzio, a Philadelphia lawyer, and an old friend needs her help. 
Um, his daughter is ill with leukemia, and he thinks he was fired because of mounting insurance costs. Mm-hmm. And so she uh, takes the case, but it rapidly becomes bigger than she expected. And uh, our review says that readers will enjoy seeing all how it all plays out in this appealing but somewhat predictable installment. 400,000 copy announced first printing. The author's going on a tour, so if you're a big fan of hers, you'll have chance to meet her mm, and right. uh you know this this seems like a very solid one for thriller fans and right below that number eight i know a secret by tess garretson um this is the 12th book in the rizzoli and isles series and uh, we say in our review that the bitterness of a boston winter doesn't hinder a killer with a knack for gruesome murders in this twisty novel uh, uh the pairs up a detective and a medical examiner trying to figure out who done it and why. And uh, we say that Garretson smoothly blends her leads domestic dramas with the hunt for the ruthless killer. And finally, uh, just below that, number 12, A Stranger in the House by Shari Lapena. Uh, we say this is a well-plotted but workmanlike thriller uh, in, in which uh, the, guests, uh, the, the cops can't figure out what an upstate New York housewife hmm. was doing in a sketchy part of town before running a red light and smashing her car headfirst into a utility pole. And uh, the accident leaves her with amnesia, so she has no idea what she was doing either. Uh, amnesia plots are pretty standard in the thriller world. No no surprise to see one here. And uh, we say that the, the characters pack all the emotional heft of the glossy shelter magazines that Karen collects. So oh, not, wow. not a lot of character depth going on here. But plentiful plot twists through the final page make this a diverting page turner. And finally, I wanted to give a shout out on the trade paperback list to uh, N.K. Jemison, whose book The Stone Sky debuts at number 11. Um, this is her third book in her uh, science fiction trilogy, uh, the Broken Earth trilogy. The first two books won back-to-back Hugo Awards. Um, she's one of very few authors who's done that. She's also the first black woman to win a Hugo for a novel. And uh, I fully expect to see this book on the Hugo ballot uh, for this coming year. It's, it is wow. phenomenal. I just finished reading it really, really great. So delighted to see her hitting the bestseller list and congratulations to her. Excellent. Great. Nonfiction. So this summer, if there could be maybe two trends that we've seen in nonfiction, I, I think, you know, throughout the summer, every week we are getting uh, quite a few, uh, in addition to some celebrity books, but conservative or right wing books, uh, topping the list in the top 25. Uh, the others are, um, I, I've seen more uh, cookbooks on the nonfiction list this summer mm. uh, than than any other time. It seems like every week there's a debut. Last week we had the Nom Nom Paleo, uh, and before that we've had several others. And this one is uh, called Brave Tart, Iconic American Desserts <laughs> <laughs> by Stella Parks. <laughs> Not Scottish, though. Not Scottish. No, no, exactly. <laughs> All <laughs> right. Tart, honoring American, uh, honoring American, uh, uh, desserts. So, okay. uh, so, so yes, exactly. I was thinking for some, you know, it, with that, it would have been, uh, Scottish, uh, treats. Um, but Parks, who's a senior editor at Serious Seats and as the creator of the Brave Tart blog, uh, has written a cookbook that is as interesting to read as it is to cook from. We say that from elegant homespun desserts to homemade Wonder Bread, uh, Parks' cookbook offers a crackerjack blend, a 
yes, there's a recipe for that too, of ingenuity and whimsy. So uh, it's a lot of fun. Great diversions. Great for, I'm sure, uh, baking for gatherings of people, friends, family, what have you. So, So that's our cookbook. We have at number nine, A Hail to the Chin, Further Confessions of a B-Movie Actor. This is by Bruce Campbell, writing with Craig Sanborn. And and, uh, Campbell's best known as Ash from the Evil Dead films. Um, Previous book of his is Make Love the Bruce Campbell Way. Returns with another self-effacing memoir about his life on the big and small screen. Um, Seems like people just really dig into these uh, B-list uh, movie stars in I'm, life. I'm a huge <laughs> fan. I would totally agree. Okay, great, great. Uh, uh, we say that uh, Campbell's always uh, entertaining and his smart-ass style makes for a groovy ride. He ends the book with his thoughts on both the Evil Dead movie remake and the current Ash vs. Evil Dead TV series, so fans will eagerly await a sequel. And then we have number 11. So we had a few of these. Body love. Live in balance. Weigh what you want and free yourself from food drama forever by Kelly Lebeck. Uh, This is a celebrity health and wellness consultant. And here she shares her secrets for losing weight and attuning ourselves to our body's needs. Uh, That's at number 11. Number 14, Rogue Spooks, The Intelligence War on Donald Trump. That is number 14. Number 16, No-Go Zones, How uh, Sharia Law is Coming to a Neighborhood Near You by Rahim Kazam. That's at number 16. We don't have a review of that book. And finally, at number 20, this is a book based on a role-playing game, Starfinder. And every once in a while, we, uh, these role-playing game books uh, or, or even video game uh, companion books pop up on the charts, and that's what we have in nonfiction. Huh. I wouldn't have expected the Starfinder rulebook to hit the charts, but uh, I guess there are a lot of people who would rather spend the, the last days of summer somewhere air-conditioned. I guess that's true. And concerning, I'm not really too sure what Starfinder is anyway. I had no expectations either way. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, David Handler tells us why he came back to the Hoagie and Lulu series after 20 years away. We'll be right back. I'm Wallace Shawn, author of Night Thoughts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today we've got David Handler on the line. His new book is The Girl with Kaleidoscope Eyes. David, so glad you could join us. Delighted to be here. So this is your ninth Hoagie and Lulu mystery. Uh, You wrote eight of these back in the 90s, and uh, this is your first one in nearly 20 years. So uh, help us sort of get reacquainted with uh, the series and with the protagonist, Stuart Hoagie. Well, Hoagie is a character who I invented uh, back in 1988. It was actually my second novel. I was a young writer. I had done a a ghostwriting experience, and I was a murder mystery fan, and I decided to try writing a, a series about a celebrity ghostwriter, which didn't exist at the time. Um, I looked around, and there were cops, there were lawyers, there were forensic specialists, forensic accountants, but there were no uh, writers. So I made him Basically, a taller, more glamorous version of myself. My first novel, Kiddo, uh, had been reviewed in the Sunday Times book review and got some glowing reviews. And uh, then I woke up 
you know, Monday morning and the rest of your life goes on, which is what happens with all of us, uh, novelists. So, um, I decided I would make him the first major new literary voice of the 1980s. He was proclaimed the it guy. Uh, he was fabulously successful. Uh, he became a New York socialite. He married a movie star named Marilee Nash, and they became, you know, the it couple of New York City. They were in Liz Smith's column every day. Mm. They bought a 12-room apartment overlooking Central Park on Central Park West. They got a 1958 Jaguar K-150 convertible. They got a Basset Hound named Lulu, who was the only dog in New York City who had her own water bowl at Elaine's. They were, you know, just (laughs) the high society couple. And Hoagie had held on to his crappy old fifth floor walk-up apartment on West 93rd Street and um, decided it was time to get started on novel number two and discovered uh, that he had writer's block. There was no novel number two, and the writer's block led to panic, and the panic led to a major cocaine problem, and he crashed and burned. Uh, Merrily divorced him. He lost the apartment. He lost the Jaguar. He lost everything except his apartment and Lulu. And in order to not be living in a shopping cart in Riverside Park, he ended up becoming a ghostwriter um, of memoirs. Uh, the first book, The uh, Man Who Died Laughing, was um, nominated for a, an Anthony Award. And the third book in the series, The Man Who Would Be F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, won an Edgar Award uh, in 1991. Um, after eight books, in 1997, I decided that the technology was changing so much that celebrity memoirs were no big deal because there was no such thing as celebrity secrets anymore. Uh, there was the internet. Uh, there was the OJ Simpson case, which uh, was, we watched a trial, a scandalous trial unfold before us in real time on cable television. Um, and I realized that, um, Celebrity memoirs just weren't it anymore, so I moved on and started another series. Uh, I've done 11 books in a series that takes place in my little village in Connecticut, uh, the Burger Mitchie series, and it's done very well. Uh, but uh, two years ago, Dan Mallory of Morrow uh, was having lunch with my agent, Dominic Abel. Dominic represents a, a small stable of very, very prestigious mystery writers, as well as me. And um, Dan said, Dominic, did you know that you represent my mother's favorite writer? And Dominic said, Sarah Paretsky? And he said, no. He said, Nevada Barr? No. Peter Robinson? No. Ian Rankin? No. I said, okay, Dan, you're going to have to help me out here. Who is, who is it? He said, David Handler. He goes, David? I mean, David. Yes, yes. David's a fine writer. Yes, very, very. You're one of, one of my finest writers. Yeah, David? And it turns out she had been a huge fan of the Hoagie series, such a huge fan that she had turned Dan on to him. Uh, he read uh, the, the Man 
uh, no, the, the Boy Who Never Grew Up, the fifth book in the series. He told me he wrote, he read that when he was 14, which I told him was a remarkable coincidence because that's the exact same age I was when I wrote it. Anyway, he, he said, would David consider resuming the series? Uh, I just love this series so much. And Dominic said, you know, uh, no, I mean, you know, especially now, uh, in the day and age of viral videos and, you know, I mean, Twitter, uh, th- there are no secrets. It's, it's, you know, just not valid anymore. Um, it's just not something that he'd be interested in doing. I'll ask him, but, you know, I can tell you he's going to say no. And, and I did say no. And Dan is a very, very stubborn guy. What he did was give a copy of the man who would be up Scott Fitzgerald to his young assistant, uh, Margo Wiseman. She read it. She thought all of the pop culture references from the early 90s were just incredibly cool because she was like in diapers then, didn't remember any of that, and um, loved all the celebrity stuff, the New York stuff, the fashion stuff, everything. And she said, why doesn't he write it as a period novel? Why doesn't he bring it back except make it 1992? So I started poking around and discovered that, well, I remembered that I had a Mac LC uh, in 1992, uh, which was hooked up to a printer, but it wasn't hooked up. There was no modem. It wasn't hooked up to the telephone line or anything like that because America Online didn't really come into existence popularly. So there was no email. Uh, clamshell cell phones didn't come along until 96. The internet was 97. Google was 98. If you went back to 92, you were talking about fax machines, telephone answering machines, and basically the same technology, you know, that I remembered from, you know, 25 years ago. Um, it didn't seem that long ago to me, but it's actually a quarter century ago, which is like a lot in techie world. So I I started thinking about it and I and I poked around and, and I realized that all of the information that I wanted was, was right there. I found a website that had a front page of every national inquirer for all fifty two weeks of nineteen ninety two and I was immediately right back in the world of Joey Buttafuoco and Amy Fisher and Jennifer Flowers. And I found People Magazine's Sexiest Man. Guess who People Magazine's Sexiest Man of the Year was in 1992. I defy you. Oh, my gosh. I'll give you a small hint. He now looks like Santa Claus on crack. <laughs> that help? No. no. Nick Nolte. Nick Nolte. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah. I, I was anyway. I was trying to think of like you know boy bands or something. Was there? Um, I could out you know in a second what was the you know the number one movie of the week? What was the number one song of the week? Uh, what uh, Seinfeld was on? Uh, but you know what were the top rated shows? And um, I suddenly got really intrigued. Uh, and uh, realized that I kind of missed Hoagie. And so I I, I, uh, I told Dominic, this is kind of interesting. Why don't you tell him I'm, I'm sort of interested? And he said, uh, well, he made a two-book offer. How's your interest level now? And I said, let's do it. <laughs> so um, I've written a new one. And it's it's just been a really 
weird kind of publishing experience. I mean, you hear about these weird publishing stories, but you never think they're actually going to happen to you. But um, I'm now back writing a character who I first uh, invented when I was like, you know, a kid. I mean, and I am, you know, uh, writing him again. Um, it's been uh, really kind of fascinating and fun and the response to this book has been um, actually kind of overwhelming. People really, really seem to like it. I think part of it is that uh, there's a lot more emotional, you know, weight, a lot more emotional impact because Hoagie's still 40, but I'm not. And so uh, I'm a more mature writer now. And um, it just really, the story really resonates. So take us to 1992 and with Hoagie and uh, tell us what's going on then. Uh, first of all, let me ask, uh, why 1992 of all years? I picked that year because I wanted to make it sort of like a sequel to the man who would be up Scott Fitzgerald. I sort of slid it in as book 3A, and I'm now writing the second book, and it'll sort of be like book 3B. It, it just kind of sandwiched in there. And um, the, the arrow worked in terms of what technology was available and what technology wasn't available. I wanted to make it pre-email, um, and... Um, and so I picked that year. Um, and, uh, the, the story is that a very, very famous, uh, American novelist who wrote one of the holy trinity of high school novels. Um, there's To Kill a Mockingbird, Catcher in the Rye, and Not Far From Here. All three books were written by sort of famously reclusive authors. Um, and, um, in this case, it's, it's, uh, Richard Aintree, who disappeared over 20 years ago when his wife committed suicide. He, uh, had two daughters, one of whom was Hoagie's first great love. So, uh, one of the great opportunities that this gave me was to go back into Hoagie's romantic past and uh, deal with his youth in a way that I had not done before, uh, uh, flashing back to a time before he met Marilee when he was a wild youth. And um, apparently Richard has written a letter from somewhere to his other daughter, uh, Monette, who is the West Coast version of Martha Stewart, and said he wants to come in out of the cold, and he wants uh, her to write a book about it, and he wants Stuart Hogue to help. Stuart Hogue and no one else. And um, so they get on a jet plane and go out to Hollywood, and um, it's a murder mystery, so somebody gets murdered, and uh, we take it from there. So Lulu gets top billing here, despite uh, being a dog. So what part does she play in helping Hoagie sort of navigate L.A., solve the mystery, uh, keep himself together? L Lulu is indispensable. Um, 
she understands everything. Okay, she she understands what people are saying, but she doesn't talk. Okay, mm. um, it, it's not like you know a cartoon or anything. But um, she can smell things and hear things that he can't smell or hear, and she has um, always been able to provide him with fantastic. Um, insights and observations. For instance, if she walks into a hotel room and immediately starts sneezing, then he knows that um, sometime in the last hour, a woman who was wearing obsession was in there because hmm. Lulu's allergic to obsession. She's allergic to a lot of things, but <laughs> things like that. She uh, always ends up front and center in the case and um, often ends up solving it. Not always, but uh, I, I try to work her in, in in an organic fashion. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if there's an opportunity for her to really play a key role, then I'll take it. And uh, as it turned out in this book, she actually does play a very important role. And what happens when they go to L.A.? Uh, it, it sounds like you're, you're not even willing to talk about who was murdered. So are, are we already at the point of spoilers here? Oh, well, um, let's just say that uh, a famous television star is murdered. And um, let's leave it at that. You talked about your agent just a little while ago. Let's talk about Alberta Price. Uh, I'm curious about uh, this agent. Alberta Price is based on my first agent, who died a number of years ago, uh, Roberta Pryor, who was the head of, head of the literary department of ICM. She was uh, Peter Benchley's agent on Jaws, uh, and she was known as the Silver Fox. And uh, she was my agent for... For this series, uh, up until you know uh, she retired, you know she was she was quite elderly, uh, and um, I've been with Dominic, wow, probably twenty years. And so, tell us about this agent in the book. What what role does she have? She knew. Um. Richard's wife, she was uh, the agent for Richard's wife, the poet, and she was the agent for the daughter, who Hoagie fell in love with, Reggie, and she brings him together with another agent, actually the uh, director of literary synergy, which is Hoagie's least favorite word in the English language, and um, brings the package together and um, makes the whole thing happen. She, she actually, as a favor to Richard's wife, read Richard's manuscript and hated it. She thought it was awful and gave him notes on it, and um, he went back and rewrote it. And she um, she sold the book, uh, which she did not actually think was very good. She thought that uh, the human comedy by William Soroyan was a better look at small town life during World War II. But um, she did it as a favor, and uh, the book um, became uh, an instant phenomenon and just was a huge selling book. 
uh, right up there with To Kill a Mockingbird and Catcher in the Rye and is constantly, you know, on every high school curriculum. Um, and she was the agent for the book. You know, she represented it. Uh, she also was the last person to see him alive before he got in a cab and went up off to Maine to visit some friends. And, um, she wants Hoagie, you know, to get involved in this thing because, uh, she's always had a funny feeling about this thing. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with David Handler, author of The Girl with Kaleidoscope Eyes. What makes L.A. such a great place to set a mystery? I mean, obviously, Hoagie's kind of based in New York, but um, this this time around, California is the place to be. Well, it's show business. It's uh, it's everything's larger than life, and um, several of the characters that are involved in the story in the extended cast are uh, stars of. Uh, television series, a TV show that's sort of a cross between Baywatch, I know, 210. And um, there's glamour. There's um, also just, you know, the, the 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 wonderful transcendent fakeness of Los Angeles. I mean, I grew up out there. I was born and raised out there. And um, uh, I love writing about L.A., uh, especially in contrast to New York. Uh, there, there's just a wonderful... Uh, American quality to it. It um, has been the setting for several of the hoagies because when you're talking about celebrities and show, you, you're often talking about movie stars or, or television stars. And do you think that you would ever um, fast forward 25 years and bring Hoagie into the present day? No longer in his 40s and um, clearly with very different technology and different things happening in the world? That's an interesting question. You see, he's a total trog. He still um, writes on a 1958 solid steel Olympia portable, I, I, uh, which is what I used to write on in my newspapering days. And I wrote my first few books on it. I still have it. It weighs about 80 pounds. It's portable. And um, he, he loves old things he's not he's very slow to adapt to um technology um he, he would be driven kicking and screaming into having to use a computer it's an interesting question i i think that uh, we'll see what happens you know as far as whether or not time you know moves forward again or not um it could get kind of complicated because the later books in the series, um, his relationship with his ex-wife changes and, um, you're sort of going to kind of run into some kind of like time continuum vortex. It will be like an X-Files thing. So, um, but, uh, I think, I 
think it's possible. Yeah, I do think it's possible. Did did you but, run? Uh, the problem is that Lulu can never get older. Mm. Hoagie can Hoagie can always kind of be hinting that he's staring forty in the face, or you know, thirty is in his rearview mirror, that kind of thing. So he, you get a vague idea of his age. But um, I discovered, you know, I, actually when I first started the series for uh, Kate Misiak at Phantom, who really was, you know, the one who kind of changed Hoagie's diapers and taught me how to write mysteries. Um, I said, you know, what's the rule about animals? Because if I write like 10 of these, I mean, you know, she'll be, she'll need a ramp to get up on the bed and then she'll be dead. You know, I mean, I mean, um, and can she just stay the same age? And, um, there was this long pause and she said, let me tell you something about this. And I said, what? She said, there are no rules. I went, oh, okay. So, <laughs> so she's always stayed the same age, uh, all through the years. Yeah. She's never getting any older. So tell us about going back to LA of the nineties, uh, for, for writing this book. Did you, uh, I mean, it's something in the nineties you might've remembered in LA though. You're, you might've been over here by now. Uh, tell us what was going on in LA. What L.A. was like in the 90s? L.A. in the 90s? Well, I was doing a lot of television and movie writing uh, in those days. So I was going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And uh, my folks still lived in L.A. in the 80s. See, I think I sold their house in 1990. And they passed away. But um, it was getting um, less uh, laid back. It was changing in becoming more, um, well, there was a riot in 92. There was, you were starting to see people on their windows and things like that. Uh, people driving around in urban assault vehicles, um, four wheel drive assault vehicles, you know, like Hummers, mm -hmm. even though there was like, no snow, no unpaved roads, no nothing. It just, the atmosphere, uh, I thought, in Los Angeles was, was a lot less, um, you know, um, laid back, you know, LA, you know, uh, volleyball and, you know, chillax, man, kind of, uh, than it had been in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I thought it had become much more part of the, the real world. Uh, I started noticing it, uh, when I was going out there around 92. Um, and I was, I kept going out there regularly on, I, I sort of quit doing movies and TV about 1998, I think, maybe 99, but, um, I was still going out there a lot in the 90s. And, um, you know, it, it definitely got more like the rest of the world. Um, a lot of traffic. Did you have any trouble um, when you said you were slotting these in as sort of books 3A and 3B, um, finding room between books 3 and 4 to, to fit a couple of stories in? Like how, how well spaced out were the original books? Um, I think it's, it's just really not that big a problem. Yeah, I mean, I didn't really make anything ta that time-specific. Uh, so... Um, 
the fourth book in the series, uh, The Woman Who Fell from Grace, was actually, he was called in to help, to go down to Stanton, Virginia, and help the woman who was writing the sequel. It was a, it was kind of a, a takeoff on the sequel to Gone with the Wind, which was a major publishing event, uh, of that era. And, uh, you know, each book was kind of standalone in terms of time. You know, there wasn't any specific, you know, reference to time or dates or, you know, so-and-so is president or anything like that. And so, um, I, you know, I, I think it's actually possible that I can write several titles, um, without running into too much problem with the, um, uh, the timing. Uh, the biggest problem or challenge will, will be his relationship with his ex-wife because, um, they keep getting together and breaking up and getting together and breaking up. And, you know, uh, there, there are consequences to that happen later in the series. And you mentioned, uh, feeling like you'd matured as a writer. Is there any particular direction that that's taken for you? What's different now about writing these books? Uh, that's a really interesting question. I slid right back into Hoagie's voice, you know, uh, immediately. It just felt really comfortable. I, I felt like I had been writing it a week ago. Uh, but, you know, um, I'm, being 20 years older, uh, uh, that's 20 years of battle scars, uh, 20 years of, you know, emotional ups and downs. And I, I just think that, that there's um, a level of uh, richness to this book, emotional richness and emotional impact that comes with the fact that I'm now in my 60s. Uh, and I've been through a lot since the last time I, I, I wrote the book. And um, uh, I turned it into Dominic, and he... Um, I'll never forget this. I, I, it was a Sunday night. I came back from a yoga class and I had my cell phone off. I turned it on and there was a voicemail on there, um, from Dominic on Sunday night at like 8.30 and his voice was quavering. And I went, oh God, something's happened. And he said, David, I, I just want to tell you, I, I finished reading the book and it's, 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 it's wonderful. It's really, it's great. I just, I just, really liked it and he never had that kind of response uh before there was just um and everyone who's read it um has felt like there's a lot more emotional impact uh in this book than in the previous books i felt it i mean i couldn't do anything for like a couple of months after i finished it. i was just kind of in a persistent vegetative state uh before i was ready to kind of get back to work um i think that um You know, you just do 20 years of living and you, um, you gain a lot more insight and, um, hopefully more depth, uh, hopefully more empathy. Uh, and the writing style ha hasn't changed. It's still Hoagie. It's still his voice, but I think there, there's just more depth there, dare I say. We've been talking with David Handler, and you can find his book, The Girl with Kaleidoscope Eyes, in stores right now. David, thank you so much for joining us. 
Oh, thank you. It's been my pleasure. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Contributing Editor Judith Rosen highlights some indie sleepers. Stay tuned. Hi, this is Christopher Golden, the author of Ararat, and you are listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week, we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors, and today, PW contributing editor Judith Rosen is here to tell us all about the Indie Sleepers feature coming out this Monday. Hello, Judith. Hi, Mark. Hi, Rose. Hello. It's always lovely to talk with you. So, Indie Sleepers. Indie here means not self-published, but small press. And what are these sleepers of of which we speak, sort of Rip Van Winkle-like? Well, these are books that um, they may not necessarily go on the bestsellers list, but they have that potential. They're, some are really, really strong debuts, um, and, and like um, one from Tin House, a memoir called The Glass Eye by um, Jean Vanesco. And some are books uh, by more seasoned writers. And one thing that fascinated me over the course of working on this was just the sheer number of great books coming out. Mm. Uh, we had submissions for 200 books to be considered for this feature, wow. which we slimmed down to. We were going to do 20, but we decided to go with 21. <laughs> we just couldn't make it to 20. Um and during the course of that slimming down process, uh, I talked to some of the reviews editors at PW, and I uh, try to find out what some of my friends in the bookselling community think about um, different titles. So two of the fiction books that we were looking at were long-listed for the Booker Prize during the process. Um, one is Reservoir 13 by John McGregor, um, and they actually, it's coming from a press called Catapult, and they actually moved up the pub date by a month for that, uh, so that when he will be in New York City in October, the book will be available. Um, they were so excited about this, and um, another book that was long-listed is from Soho Press, and it's called Solar Bones. It's by a man named Mike McCormick, um, who's won other awards. Um, he lives on the other side of the ocean. And um, what's intriguing about this book is it's one sentence long. Hmm. Wow. A very long one sentence. And I know that um, Stephen Sparks at uh, Point Ray Books in Point Ray Station, California, said um, that it's nothing short of a masterpiece. And he said that way before the Booker Prize was in the offing. Wow. Um, so it's fun to have that. We have one one really juicy book that we put in just because it was so much fun. Um Pegasus Books is doing um, a book called Marita, The Spy Who Loved Castro by Marita Lawrence. She had written her life story about 
25 years ago um, with a writer, but she wasn't happy with the way it went exactly, and so the way that writing process went, and she worked with her son, Mark, and um, retold this story. Uh, she is a fascinating person. She was born in Germany. Uh, her childhood, early childhood, was spent in Bergen-Belsen, the concentration camp, and um, then she became a spy. <laughs> um, hmm. The CIA wanted her to assassinate Fidel Castro, which she obviously did not do. Um, and it, uh, she even testified when the president, when President Kennedy was assassinated, because she had known or met some of the figures connected to that assassination, like Lee Harvey Oswald, when she was in Cuba. Hmm. And there is a movie coming out with Jennifer Lawrence playing her. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so it's very, very intriguing. So it's not yeah. all highbrow, <laughs> highbrow, highbrow, but interesting stories, which I think is what all good good fiction is, sure. is about. Um, there's some fascinating nonfiction, too. There's a great book from the New Press called Dawn of Detroit. We think we know the story of Detroit. Um we think we know how there was big migration and all these people came to Detroit, especially uh, from the South. And uh, what the author, uh, Taya Miles, uh, has found is actually there were a lot of African Americans who were captives in Detroit in the early years before that great migration, and they're the ones who helped build Detroit. Hmm. So it's fascinating and very different take on on a piece of history we think we know. Right. There's another um, great piece of history from uh, New York University Press called Gilded Suffragists, and it's about um, the well-to-do women who really contributed to gaining, helping gain the right to vote for women in New York City. The anniversary, 100th anniversary is coming in November for the women's right to vote in New York. And so these are women, uh, the Astors, the Belmonts, the Harrimans, the Vanderbilts, who um, were really instrumental in women's suffrage. And I'm not sure that people realize that necessarily. So um, that's a really fun a fun book. There's a book where um, an editor had to go into the wilderness in order to sign this book. It's called A Year in the Wilderness, and um, it's by Amy and Dave Freeman. It's being published by Milkweed. Hmm. And um, these two wanted to make a point about the Boundary Waters um, Canoe Area Wilderness, which is uh, in the northern third of the Superior National Forest in northeastern Minnesota, and they lived out there for a year. Um, and it's just a really extraordinary book, and anybody who cares about having wild places left on the earth will be, I think, will be really interested in reading it. That sounds lovely. I love that you're citing presses I've never even heard of. You're really, you, you clearly did your homework here. We 
we tried. We tried <laughs> uh, really hard to find um, to find lots of great books. Uh, we did include um, university presses um, in this group. I, I did say NYU, um, but we also had a selection from the University of California about a history of the world and seven cheap things. <laughs> and uh, I know that the advanced reviewers were like, um, what's really great about the way these authors, um, the authors of Raj Patel and Jason Moore, uh, they, they also are able to find a new way of thinking about things. So they believe that the seven cheap things that made the world and will shape the future are nature, money, work care, food, energy, and lives. And it's um, it's a really interesting guide to capitalism, nature, and what's going to happen to the planet. <laughs> so uh, it's quite unusual. We didn't overlook kids' books either. I should uh, be clear about that. Uh, we picked a very fun book from Black Sheep called What is Hip Hop? And uh Yes, it's a board book written for kids, a G-rated look at hip-hop. Mm. Um, and the illustrations in it uh, by a person named Annie Yi are really quite remarkable. Oh uh, my gosh, I want this. I want this for my baby right now. <laughs> it's 3D clay figures. And, oh, how cool. Um, they're just very cool. And if you go online, you can actually find some videos of how those 3D clay figures were created and then they were photographed and um, uh, very nice. Uh, the same set of authors had done an earlier book on um, funk. Uh, so oh, uh, cool. This is, <laughs> this, is, this is fun. And um, we had another one from Top Shelf, which is uh, a, a graphic novel for for teens uh, from a person named Campbell White called Home Time. And it's the first book in a series called Under the River. Uh, these two kids who happen to be twins, Lily and David, um, just want to hang out in the summer before they head off to high school. But uh, as these things happen in novels sometimes and sometimes in life, uh, their plans are destroyed. Uh, they end up falling into a river and waking up in a village with fantastic creatures. It's very cool. Very, very cool. That sounds like so much fun. It is definitely fun. So um, we really tried to, we really tried to mix, mix things up a little bit. Uh, there's some well-known writers that we included, like Jane Yolen, um, her first book for adults in a, a dozen years called The Emerald Circus, coming from Tachyon, and it's a collection of stories. Uh, I love the idea that Emily Dickinson sails away in a starship made of light. Uh, and Holly Black, another favorite author, uh, wrote an introduction to it. So, um, yeah, I think I think they're good. We have a book by Ashley Erdogan, who probably is not as well-known in this country as she should be. Um, this book is coming from City Lights, and it's called The Stone Building and Other Places. It's only her second book to be translated into English, and it's three interconnected stories 
about women whose lives have been interrupted. And if you think maybe her name is familiar, uh, even though she hasn't been published that much in the U.S., it's probably because a lot of attention has been focused on her recently. She was imprisoned in Turkey last year mm. uh, following a failed coup there, and she is awaiting charges that could put her in prison for life. Wow. But uh, despite that sad story, or she is an amazing writer, and it's just a, a really, really good book. Um, so it's it's well worth reading for the stories alone, even without the story of this writer. So uh, I there are some other pieces. I. Uh, other stories that we included, um, there's a novel called See What I Have Done, which has gotten a lot of attention. It's just out from Atlantic Monthly Press, mm. and it turns the uh, Lizzie Borden story on its ear a little bit. I know that um, PW, PW's reviewer talked about it as compelling as a whodunit. A why done it and a historical novel and um sarah schmidt just tells this story beautifully well thank you so much judith it sounds like an amazing lineup of books and uh, we'll definitely look forward to seeing the whole feature when it comes out well thank you so much and now a final word from our sponsors Beyond the headlines, beyond the routine, beyond the book, I'm Chris Keneally, host of Copyright Clearance and his podcast series, Beyond the Book. And I'm Andrew Albanese, senior writer at Publishers Weekly. Join us each Friday for a publishing news week in review podcast unlike any other. Learn all the breaking news and catch the best analysis on developments in the book trade, copyright law, and much more. You already know business as usual. Now go Beyond the Book. Listen to the free series and subscribe at beyondthebook.com. And that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox. And you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another fascinating author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcasts on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 